From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. When you think of agriculture, you think of the typical white rural family farm, but there's so many black people that do farm, and I would say it's naturally just in our blood. This week on the show, we have a special presentation from the Ohio-based Grounded Hope podcast about the history, present, and future of black farming in the U.S. And we have a story about Ojibwe wild rice cultivation in Minnesota, and Harvest Public Media reports on a new conservation initiative for farmers from the Biden administration. Plus, mushroom growers talk about meeting increased demand for their product. That's all coming up in the next hour here on Earth Eats. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Farmers and ranchers often try to protect their soil and land, sometimes getting paid by the federal government to do so. It's called conservation, and for decades it's been a pretty humdrum corner of agriculture. That changed when President Joe Biden announced a goal to conserve 30% of the country's land by 2030. Now some are opposing conservation and comparing it to government takeover. Harvest Public Media's Elizabeth Rembert takes you to Nebraska, where the opposition is boosted by powerful support from the governor. Let's go back to Earth Day last April in Lincoln, Nebraska. Governor Pete Ricketts is taking the stage at a conference. But instead of pushing a typical go green message, he's here to talk about the dangers of conservation. He says the Biden administration is butting in to something his state already does well. We do the right thing here in Nebraska. We don't need the federal government lecturing us about the environment. Nebraska's landowners are interested in conservation. They've historically been at the top of the sign-up list to get paid by the federal government for using environmental practices. President Biden praised that in a long document outlining his America the Beautiful initiative. It's more well-known as 30 by 30. It's essentially a goal to conserve 30 percent of the nation's land and water by 2030. The plan is vague with some details. So a group of Republican governors, including Iowa's Kim Reynolds and Oklahoma's Kevin Stitt, sent a letter with questions Ricketts laid out at the Earth Day event. We want to know, what's the definition of conservation? How are you planning to do this? Where's your authority? They don't want to tell you what those answers are. Ricketts has filled in the gaps. To him, it could become a federal land grab. He suggests the government wants land out of agriculture production and will trick landowners if that's what it takes. Americans are now addicted to conspiracy theories. John Hansen leads the Nebraska Farmers Union and has worked around conservation for almost 50 years. He says up till now, conservation was a meeting place between people across the political spectrum. He thinks Ricketts has changed that. What he has been doing is to create question marks and fears and suspicions where there should be none. Hansen says he's afraid it could chip away at confidence in conservation programs that have been around for decades. If landowners who have traditionally used conservation cost share programs and thought about them in an extremely positive way and saying, gee, I don't know whether I should or not, maybe the federal government in the fine print somehow is going to take over my farm. That's never been a worry for Dean Fetty. He and his brother Wayne use conservation practices on their farm in southeast Nebraska. 
Sitting in lawn chairs in front of a white farmhouse, the brothers say they aren't nervous about losing ownership. They're in control. Dean looks out at the century-old oak trees where songbirds build their nests. He says conservation protects it all. There is no land grab. The government is not going to take your farm there to help protect that ground. They want to see working farms continue to be working farms. It's just opposite of what's being told. The brothers know their land will always be a farm. They entered a legal agreement called a conservation easement in 2010. Supporters say easements are tools to protect farmland, especially as more of it gets paved into parking lots or housing developments. But Governor Ricketts told Harvest Public Media that easements are a threat to property rights. You are basically agreeing that you do not have your property rights anymore. You're restricting the use of that land to whatever those covenants mean. But you are giving up the right to be able to use that land in the way you want it. You've given up your property rights. He's gone as far as to encourage county authorities to rethink whether to grant conservation easements. And at least two landowners have had their requests denied. Dean says there wasn't a trace of politics when he and Wayne got their easement a decade ago. And he says they have no regrets. It's one of the better things we've ever done. This farm will be forever a working farm in perpetuity. This farm is a part of us. I mean, it's just an extension of us. But for others in Nebraska, that path to preserving their land might be narrowing. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Elizabeth Rembert. Harvest Public Media is a collaboration of public media newsrooms in the Midwest and Great Plains, including KCUR. They report on food systems, agriculture, and rural issues. Find more from this reporting collective at harvestpublicmedia.org. This is Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. The number of Black-owned farms has drastically declined since the 1920s and now make up less than 2% of total U.S. farmland. Next up on Earth Eats, we have a special presentation of the Grounded Hope podcast from Agraria Center for Regenerative Practice in Greene County, Ohio. In this episode, host Renee Wild talks with one of the organizers of the Black Farming Conference, Beyond 40 Acres and a Mule. We learn how three childhood friends created an urban farm out of an abandoned dumping ground and hear from a first-time grower about the joys of eating food that you've poured your essence into. Here's the Grounded Hope podcast, a special presentation on Earth Eats. So I'm from the city. I'm born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, always lived in the city. Never really been like in the country, but I always loved nature. But once I came to Central State, I was kind of lost for a minute and uh, confused on what I wanted to do. And uh, actually, the Ag Ed Department sent me to a conference. Uh, and I saw those opportunities, and I said, wow, all right, I can take this. I can change the world, change my community, and change myself all in one. Uh, and it was just a beautiful cycle. That was Dejan Britman, a senior at Central State University in Wilberforce, Ohio, studying agricultural education with a minor in sustainability. Central State is a historic black college that received land-grant status in 2014. That status allowed them to expand the college's programming to include agricultural and ag-related studies. 
The university was also one of the presenters at the Black Farming Conference in Ohio last fall that we'll talk about in this episode. You're listening to Grounded Hope. I'm the host, Renee Weil. And in this episode, we'll take a look at three friends who turned a dump site in a Cleveland neighborhood into an urban farm where they teach others how to be food activists in their own communities. We'll learn some key history from the Ohio Black Farming Conference last fall and hear about the joy of eating homegrown food from a first-time black farmer. And on the way, we'll explore issues and opportunities facing black farmers, including land access, USD support, and community growth. From the highways to the hedgerows, we bring you Grounded Hope. Black farmers played an important role in developing agriculture. George Washington Carver was a pioneer in the regenerative agriculture movement, advocating for amending the soil with locally available compost materials rather than chemicals, and planning diversified crops both as ecological insurance and as a food source. Carver found that years of growing cotton and tobacco had depleted the nutrients from the soil, but he discovered that by growing nitrogen-fixing plants like peanuts as part of a crop rotation, it can restore the soil health. In 2001, Ohio held the state's first conference for black farmers. The goal was to give the black farming population an opportunity to network and discuss ideas specific to their needs. The last Ohio census had listed only 135 black-owned farms. This decline was part of a nationwide trend that saw black farm ownership dramatically decline from 14% to 1.4% since the early 1900s. The conference organizers warned that if strategies weren't implemented to address this declining trend, black farmers would become extinct. But despite the dire warnings, when organizers held a black farming conference last year, the number of black farmers in Ohio had risen by only 62 over the last two decades. We really wanted to make sure that we were celebrating the historical contributions of black farming in America, as well as celebrate what we can accomplish today. Ariella Brown was a lead organizer of that second conference, held virtually last fall at Agraria. It was called Black Farming, Beyond 40 Acres and a Mule. Our keynote speaker was Annalisa Cox, and she wrote the book, The Bone and the Sinew of the Land, and it focuses on America's black pioneers who essentially settled here and cultivated the land before this region was even you know, states. So this is pre-Civil War. The Bone and the Sinew of the Land tells the story of the Greers, one of the first black settlers who started occupying frontier land for agriculture in 1818. The Greers were part of what Annalisa Cox calls the lost history of the nation's first great migration. Black pioneers who were building hundreds of settlements in the Northwest Territory, which are now the present-day states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and Michigan. Longtown, Ohio is another example of this first migration. The town, which sits along the Indiana border, was founded in 1818 by a black man named James Clemens. The James and Sophia Clemens farmstead is now the oldest and last remaining agricultural resource in one of Ohio's earliest black settlements. And so she really talked about just how well these black pioneers were able to be self-sustainable and create a livelihood for themselves that people really didn't know about. And so it was, it was really empowering to hear that message. It's important to have these conversations because historically, black people are left out of the conversation. And history tells a different story. Historically, government and other agencies have been accused of discrimination against black farmers. And in 1999, a class action lawsuit was brought against the United States Department of Agriculture. 
The Pigford v. Glickman case alleged racial discrimination against African-American farmers for farm loans and assistance during the 80s and 90s. Also, when you think of agriculture, you think of the typical white rural family farm, but there's so many black people that do farm, and I would say it's naturally just in our blood. Ariella's interest in farming was sparked by her time serving as an agricultural staffer for Congresswoman Marsha Fudge in Cleveland. She would often say, you know, people wonder why someone who represents a mostly urban district sits on the agriculture committee when most of the funds go to rural agriculture, but she recognized that living in a food insecure district could really support her community. A food desert is an area or community that lacks access to healthy, nutritious food. In Ohio, hundreds of thousands of people lack accessibility to healthy food, primarily in underserved rural and urban communities, as grocery stores continue an exodus from areas with low income and low population density. Black farmers have been leaders in developing strategies to grow food in small community spaces as an important part of addressing this food insecurity. We really had the opportunity to build something unique in an urban district. She had a vision that she wanted to construct 100 seasonal high tunnels throughout her district, and I was really the person to lead that effort. One of our first high tunnel recipients was a gentleman who owned a church, but he just loved farming. He was from the South, and he gave all of his harvest to his church members. Most people who were applying for these high tunnels were doing it for their community. I think just we as an American society are so removed from our food, we don't really understand where food comes from. And we need to get back to that as a community, as a society. And so one of the goals that we really want to accomplish by hosting this conference is to really provide resources and to spark the next generation of farmers. Mark the date for the next Black Farming Conference hosted at Agraria, which will be held virtually and in person this coming fall on September 10th and 11th. Uh, my name is Kenny Mosby. Amber Jenkins. And what are you doing here? I'm trying to gain knowledge, trying to better myself and pass it down to the next generation. Well, I personally wanted to get more knowledge on how to grow my own food at home and how to maximize and some more of the details of it. So it's really exciting. And my vision, everybody would have a community garden in their backyard. <laughs> it's the first day of class at the Riddle Green Partnership Urban Farm in the Kinsman neighborhood in Cleveland, Ohio. Over the next five months, the people in this class will be provided with practical, hands-on training in different types of urban farming practices, combined with education on the social impacts of urban agriculture. This urban farm is the dream of three childhood friends who grew up in Cleveland, Kima Durden, Randy McShepard, and Damien Forche, who is now deceased. Along with co-founders Mark White and David Hester, they call themselves the Soil Brothers. So my name's David Hester. I'm called Dr. Greenhand. Dr. Greenhand is a master gardener. He teaches farming practices like aquaponics and composting, and also classes on how to create an agribusiness. I've been here since day one, since its inception. My cousin, Damien Forche, we actually had this uh, whole idea about 15 years ago, and we just sort of like 
I went from a dream to talking about it to actually putting it into action. So the very first day that we actually had the property to actually do it on was was my, probably my biggest biggest achievement because we had went all around the city looking for for land and we wasn't able to get it. You know until we um, settled down here, went to the land bank and we got an uh, acre and a third of land. The Cuyahoga Land Bank acquires abandoned or foreclosed land and returns them to productive use through sales to private owners. The land can be used for rehabilitation, economic development, and creative uses such as gardening. The land bank is representative of a larger national conversation around land access and reparations that is exploring strategies to provide opportunities for growers. The brothers call this piece of land the Farmazon, the Forgotten Green Triangle, and when the group first got this property in 2011, it had been a dumping ground. Today, the property has two greenhouses, four hoop houses, a composting facility, and a 40,000 square foot aquaponics fishery. Okay, so this is our, our main greenhouse. We have three 1,500 gallon tanks where we can grow one fish per gallon up to a pound and a half. That's Mark White. They're very lucrative. So I can take a uh, fingerling and grow them out to a full pound and a half size fish inside of, of, of five to six months and sell that fish for about $10 a piece from an initial purchase of maybe, you know, 30 or 40 cents. He says that by teaching these types of cottage industries that don't require a lot of space, they are giving people the skills to become entrepreneurs in their own communities without the need for big investments in land. Land access is a challenge for all farmers, but for black farmers in particular, the ability to put down roots can help to heal discrimination and disconnection. That's the foundation kind of what we do here, teaching people how, how to grow relationships between themselves and the natural environment. And you actually provide a very good thing for your community. There's so many things in the community now that are robbing us of life and cheating the people. Something that's going to bring life and add financial substances should be welcomed. The farm counts over 37 revenue streams, but the foundation of the operation stems from composting. Using discarded produce from the Cleveland Food Bank, leftover hops from area breweries, coffee grounds, and wood chips from the city's forestry department. We spent our first year literally growing soil. Black gold soil is just beaming with life. You know, it's a non-pasteurized growing medium that we produce here. Everything here is produced from the soil that we produce. The organization was recently tapped to take over operations for a 60-year-old farmer's market in Maple Heights that closed last May due to the pandemic. Yes, and people had grown quite dependent upon it. And so we're able to take things we grow here and sell there, as well as make connections with local growers and other farmers markets and bring produce you know, to that area. And so for us, that's a very, very um, powerful feather in our cap. Because that, that's part of our goal. Our goal was to provide these connections to, to, to uh, help alleviate food insecurity and to bring you know, an understanding of nature back to people.
when I was growing up, I always thought, why is daddy out there all day? Like, what is he doing? Because he would get up in early in the morning, he would come out here, then he would come back in for lunch and come back out and then he wouldn't be back in until dinner. And I'm like, what is he doing? Well, now I understand. It's a lot to maintain this property. You know, that's what he was doing. And so now I'm trying to revitalize it and get it back to its beauty the way it was before, so. That's Kenesha Robinson. She moved from Chicago back to the Dayton area to help take care of her father who had developed Alzheimer's. When Kenesha was growing up, her father raised hogs and grew vegetables on this family farm. I remember my dad used to grow a lot of things, different types of greens and beans and squashes and all types of things. You know, he really used this land to feed our family. I knew that there things grew here before, but the property hadn't been used in nearly 20 years. Kanisha explains how her new partner got her interested in growing. This actually all came about because of her. She posted something on social media about wanting to buy a farm and wanting to grow vegetables and raise animals and things like that. And she was talking about how hard it was for her to find the right property. I said, well, we have this land here that's not being used. Like, just come and use it. Kanisha and her partner broke ground for their first garden in 2020. Our goal for this first year was just to see what grew. Because ne neither one of us knew anything about what we were going to do. And this was completely covered in grass. But we're like, oh, we're going to grow fruits and vegetables this year. And we're going to have a garden and da 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 But we would look at it and we're like, how, how are we going to do this? A friend hooked Kanisha up with someone who had a tractor that came out to the farm and plowed up the garden area. Kanisha and her partner mounded the tilled soil into raised rows where they grew vegetables in the same soil her dad used to farm. So the summer garden went extremely well. We grew okra, zucchini, yellow squash, tomatoes, cucumber, um, what else? Oh, cantaloupe, peppers, greens, some herbs, green beans. And then we said, okay, well, we want to try our hand at fall items. And we did some radishes and arugula. They came up, the cabbage got eaten, but everything else didn't really produce anything. So we decided this year we're not gonna do a fall planting. We're just gonna focus on um, spring and summer. Kanisha and her partner are quickly learning what works for them and adjusting to fit their needs. Well, so we had this idea because there's so many areas here in the Dayton area that are considered food deserts. We wanted to like set up a little stand and, you know, be able to sell the produce. Uh, but since this was our first year, we had a lot of learning to do. So we discovered that we probably needed to plant more so that we could have the volume to be able to sell. So what we did was we gave it away to family and friends. Kanisha admits she had to overcome her squeamishness of things like spiders and snakes when she first started. And once we started, it just renewed, regenerated, rejuvenated something within me. And I love it. Like, I absolutely love it. I love getting my hands dirty. I love touching the dirt. I sometimes would have friends come out and they'd be like, you don't, you're not wearing gloves? 
I'm like, no, like I love, I want to feel, I want to feel the earth. I want to feel the dirt. Like, and when you're planting the seeds, it gave me a rush, actually. It gave me such a rush. Kanisha and her partner would like to eventually expand the farm to include sheep, honeybees, fruit trees, medicinal herbs, and pollinating flowers, creating an agribusiness. Yeah, we want to eventually sell our, our produce and honey um, to the community. I mean, that's the whole purpose of us wanting to revitalize this, this property. Eventually, I would love to get into teaching people how to do this for themselves. I just want to encourage people of color to start growing food. There's something that is so rewarding and satisfying about planting a seed, nurturing that, watching it grow, and then being able to eat that. Your energy, your, your essence is in that food. This is a wonderful thing that I've learned is that anybody can grow. You don't have to have all this land. If you live in an apartment, you can still plant food. You can get a plastic bin from the dollar store. You buy you some soil, you can plant in that. Like there's so many ways that you can grow your own food. I really think that people need to get back to that. Small diversified operations like Riddall and Kanisha's farm are the wave of the future, creating opportunities close to home. Kanisha Robinson attended the Black Farming Conference last fall at Agraria and will be part of the Black, Indigenous, and People of Color training in regenerative agriculture there this summer. Any research on black farming will inevitably bring you to the Soulfire Farm in Grafton, New York, an Afro-Indigenous-centered community farm committed to uprooting racism and seeding sovereignty in the food system. We end this episode with a quote from the book, Farming While Black, by Soulfire Farm co-founder Leah Penniman. Our great-great-grandmothers in Dahomey, West Africa, witnessed the kidnapping and disappearance of members of their community and experienced a rising unease about their own safety. As insurance for an uncertain future, they began the practice of braiding rice, okra, and millet seeds into their hair. While there were no report backs from the other side of the transatlantic slave trade, and rumors abounded that white people were capturing Africans to eat us, they still had the audacity of hope to imagine a future on soil. Once sequestered in the bowels of the slave ships, they continued the practice of seed smuggling picking up grains from the threshing floor and hiding the precious kernels in their braids. You can join the Black Farming Network and listserv that grew out of last year's conference by writing to blackfarmingconferenceoh at gmail.com. For more information on black farming, go to our website at groundedhope.org, where you'll find educational materials, book recommendations, and even recipes that complement these podcasts. 
And that's all the work of our two humanity scholars who guide this podcast. Beth Bridgman, an associate professor at Antioch University in Yellow Springs, and Rick Livingston, an associate director of the Humanities Institute at Ohio State University in Columbus. They team up with our webmaster Rachel Isaacson and AmeriCorps Vista at Agraria. This podcast is made possible by the people at Community Solutions Agraria Center for Regenerative Practices and by a grant from the Ohio Humanities. I'm Renee Wild, and you've been listening to Grounded Hope. That was an episode from the Grounded Hope podcast, a special presentation here on Earth Eats. Grounded Hope podcast is a project of Agraria Center for Regenerative Practice in Greene County, Ohio. Still to come on the show, a story about harvesting wild rice in Minnesota and mushroom cultivation in North Carolina. That's all just ahead. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. This next story is from 10,000 Fresh Voices, a series produced at KFAI in Minneapolis, Minnesota. When folks think of Minnesota cuisine, comfort foods like hot dish and lefse, those staples of church suppers and potlucks, come to mind. But long before Norwegian settlers arrived, native Ojibwe had already perfected the cultivation of a wonder food, manumen, or wild rice. KFAI's Allison Herrera has this story about the Midwest's famous freshwater grain. This is the sound of wild rice season in Net Lake, a small village on the Boys Fort Band of Chippewa Reservation, 90 miles south of International Falls. Two people are steering in a canoe while someone beats the stalks growing on the lake. The rice falls in the boat. Leaves are just beginning to change colors as an early fall breeze rolls across the lake. This lake, Net Lake, produces some of the best wild rice crop in Minnesota. Many elders who grew up here have been harvesting rice their whole lives. One of those elders is Gene Goodsky. That's my Indian name, my real name. My other name is Jean Goodsky. Jean is 74 years old and grew up in Orr, a small town not far from Net Lake. He's riced since he was 12. I was over at my grandpa's house. This guy came in and he says, uh, I'm looking for a partner. He says, there's nobody around. Then he looked at me and he says, how about you? I said, uh, yeah, then he asked everybody, yeah, he's good. He's a pretty strong paddler. Rising takes skill and practice. There are a few key positions when you get out on the boat. A paddler, the poler, the person who steers and looks for the best spots where the rice crop is thick on the lake, and the knocker, the most important position. Gene liked working as a poler, but the reason had nothing to do with rice. So that per- the polar's kind of the scout, like... Yeah, kind of moves. It's, it was better when uh, you could see, you could see where the girls were. <laughs> you could see where the girls were. 
Even now, Gene tries his luck. When I asked about going out on the boat to go ricing, I was told that it's only reserved for Net Lake villagers and wives of villagers. That's when I got a marriage proposal. He was only kidding, but it gives you an idea of his playful nature. People like Gene have been harvesting wild rice here for centuries. The food is part of their seven prophecies. Ojibwe people were told thousands of years ago they would settle where food grows on water. Today, many villagers in Netlake feel the tradition is declining as people rely more on store-bought food and less on subsistence. But it still has a significant cultural and social role here. Still, a lot of people go out, not just on Netlake, but nearby Pelican Lake and Big Rice Lake. The knocker makes or breaks the whole operation. Once the knocker hits the rice with the pole, the rice falls to the bottom of the boat. But the knocker must be careful not to break the stalk. Otherwise, it kills that plant and rice won't grow anymore. Mary Bell Isham, another Boys Fort elder, remembers how hard it was being out on the boat, paddling with her dad. So that started us pretty young, and he kept us out there mostly all day. I used to cry while I was badly. (laughs) How come? Why? It's hard work. Yeah, hard on your arms. Oh, it's hard on everything and the bugs and the heat. But that was the beginning of my ricing. Both Jean and Mary Bell also remember the process after the rice is hauled in from the boat. That's where a lot of the hard work is done. At Jean Goodsky's camp on Pelican Lake, boats, canoes, and equipment compete for space. Off to the side near a makeshift dock is his kettle and all the other equipment needed to prepare the rice. About five pounds of green rice in here, and you just turn turn it. Would there be a little fire underneath? Definitely. Has to be a fire. Yeah, yeah, then you gotta have more. You gotta have two to three people to keep the, the everything going. We're setting up our uh, our parches. Yeah. There's two ways that we parch. This season, spring and summer storms made it hard for the rice to grow. But that didn't stop camps of men, women, elders, and children setting off in boats on to harvest the food that sustained them since the beginning. At Harvest Sen, people gather at the Miigwech Manuman powwow. They dance and pray for the rice to come back next year. For KFAI, I'm Allison Herrera. That story was produced by Alison Herrera with 10,000 Fresh Voices, local arts, culture, history, and environmental features made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. It comes to us from KFAI in Minneapolis through PRX, Public Radio Exchange. When a food or ingredient is trending, what exactly does that mean for those who work with that food on a local level? Producer Josephine McRobbie spoke with North Carolina chefs, farmers, and foragers about the mushrooming demand for their product. In January, the New York Times named edible mushrooms the culinary ingredient for 2022. Among lab-engineered faux chicken and 80s-style cocktails, mushrooms might not seem that exciting, 
But according to wild food expert Frank Hyman, they've been trending for quite a while. I can think of like maybe five times in the last 10 years where some publication has said mushrooms are the it food for this year. Like Martha Stewart declared them the it food for 2019. The same year that there were like three movies in which mushrooms played a role as as a tool of assassination. (laughs) The mystery and excitement surrounding mushrooms even inspired Frank to write a book. My book is called How to Forage for Mushrooms Without Dying. You talk about mushrooms and people like they step back and they're like, oh, oh, you could die from eating mushrooms. You better be careful out there, Frank. Mushrooms are so tricky. Even experts can't tell them apart, which is just not true. But people believe this. One of his first rules for mushroom hunters is to avoid what he calls LBMs. That stands for little brown mushrooms. Uh, anybody who's a bird watcher is familiar with the term LBJs, little brown jobs because there's a bazillion little brown birds. So there's a similar dynamic with mushrooms. There is a boatload of little brown mushrooms that 99.99% of them are not edible or interesting in any way. Because if you're leading a mushroom hike or a foray is the term people like to use, and you get sucked into spending a lot of time identifying mushrooms that are not interesting and not edible, that's time you're not spending getting further down the trail into the woods finding the equivalent of the painted buntings of the mushroom world, which is chicken of the woods and lion's mane and bolites and thing and lobster mushrooms, you know, things that are colorful and beautiful and delicious. He says in general, wild mushrooms should be cooked before eating. Two of the most commonly eaten wild mushrooms, chanterelles and morels. If you eat them raw, you will be hugging the toilet. You'll be doing that because when they're raw, they have chemicals in them that will make you throw up. And so you have to cook them to denature those chemicals. And then they're totally safe to eat. So that's just one reason. Another reason is that it's wise to think of um, mushrooms as being more equivalent to meat than to vegetables and they're equivalent to meat in that they could have bacteria on them out in the woods. One type that can be eaten raw is the beefsteak mushroom. It's kind of the shape of a big wide tongue. So it looks like a there's a cow inside the tree and it's sticking its tongue out at you. The interior of the mushroom looks marbled like steak and it, it smells lemony, which is the, the clue. So it has citric acid in it, which suppresses bacteria. And so this is a mushroom that comes with its own preservative. So it's free of bacteria. It's free of chemicals that would make you sick from eating it raw. It actually tastes better raw. He says that one of the selling points for wild mushrooms is their ability to imitate other foods. I I think of them as a good food, a good alternative for vegetarians who are nostalgic. Right? If you grew up eating meat and seafood, you've become vegetarian and you kind of miss that texture and those flavors, then mushrooms can kind of help you bridge that gap. One of Frank's favorites is known as the cauliflower mushroom, but he calls it something else. It looks like egg noodles. It looks like somebody had a big bowl of egg noodles, tripped over a root and spilled it on the ground and, and then went home. And the texture is pretty close to the texture of al dente egg noodles. He's been doing a bit of PR for this type. So this is one of the mushrooms and one of the preparations I use when I'm dealing with people who swear that they don't like mushrooms. Partly it's partly it's the name because that's a part of the whole 
eating experience, you know? It's how it tastes, it how it looks, it how it smells, just how it's described. And for the really adventurous, there's the indigo milky, a mushroom that bleeds a kind of blue milk. And the milk, it just tastes like the mushroom, so it's not like a different flavor or bad flavor. The blue uh, milk kind of will dry out if you leave it in the fridge too long. So you find some blue milkies, bring them home, clean them up, cook them right then, uh, cook up some scrambled eggs, and then put the blue milkies in that, and the blue will turn the yellow uh, of the eggs into like a greenish color. So if you grew up with Dr. Seuss and you like green eggs and ham, here's your chance to do that. But I don't, I've never talked to anybody who's done it more than once. Frank says that with more people exploring the outdoors over the past couple of years, the treasure hunting quality of wild mushrooms has helped to booster their popularity. When people first go out mushroom hunting, either by themselves or with an expert or with some friends, whatever, you're not going to find the you know, exciting mushrooms every time. It's a little bit of a, of a lottery. I mean, mostly 95% of the time, probably you will find something and 60% of the time you'll be super happy with what you find. But even a bad day of foraging is still a great day outdoors. The, uh, you're, you got out of the house, you got out of the office, you're out with friends. It's gourmet food for free for being outdoors. In the beginning, we were kind of the weird crop at the farmer's market. Laura Stewart is the owner of Haw River Mushrooms. Her farm has doubled in size every year since it opened in 2012. I used to have to kind of explain how to cook even oysters and definitely things like lion's mane to almost every customer. And now I have quite a few that just come in. They know exactly what they want. You know, they're happy to listen to my spiel, but they don't really need it. So like the general education level of customers around mushrooms has gone way up. Uh, It's a little hard to know how much is just that our business has gotten bigger and we're getting better at what we do, but business has definitely grown steadily. And and I would uh, attribute that in part to just the U.S. kind of hitting its stride around mushroom consumption. That sound is our misters kicking on. So those are on a timer and we're uh, just trying to keep it at 90% humidity, which keeps these guys happy. Laura is showing me through Haw River's foggy and humid grow room. With rack after rack of erupting mushroom pods, it feels like something out of a science fiction movie. A lot of times we'll talk about lion's mane as being kind of like crab meat. Black pearl mushrooms, uh, which are cultivated for their stems and they taste like sea scallops. Earlier in the process, fungal spores are inoculated in a sterilized substrate mix of sawdust and soybean hulls. They sit in thick plastic bags in a refrigerated trailer to begin growing, and then they're moved to this warmer room when they're ready to fruit. Laura's team makes their way through this room twice a day to pick ripe mushrooms. Our blue oyster mushrooms double in size every 24 hours during their main growth stage. So um, by tomorrow, they're probably gonna be a little further than we would want them to be. Today, they're a little younger than we want them to be. So even harvesting twice a day, we can't catch all of them at that perfect moment. It's wild, like uh, there were times when we were starting out, we just wouldn't have quite enough, quite as many mushrooms as we'd want to bring to market. And I would literally do a second harvest right before I left. I'd pack everything and then go back in because in that hour, things had gotten a little bit bigger. 
The oysters are a mainstay at Haw River Mushrooms. Chefs love oyster mushrooms. We'll grow what we call blue oysters year-round. Um, so in the winter we have this completely white mushroom we call the snow oyster, and then this brown kind of meaty chewy oyster we call the Italian oyster. And then in the summer, those take a rest and we start growing uh, golden oysters, which really are this radiant yellow, and pink oysters, which are this pretty awesome pink. Laura and her husband started Haw River as a vegetable farm. Mushrooms were just one of many crops. We just thought we'll add mushrooms to our lineup. We'll have lettuce and broccoli and we'll throw in some mushrooms as another variety and kind of got the bug and realized there's a lot more diversity that we could explore if we focused on it. They've since moved from working out of their home to managing a 17-acre farm with this huge warehouse and some outbuildings, and they're in the process of building a commercial kitchen. Along with the CSA, Haw River sells at eight farmers markets. They make mushroom jerky and tinctures, and they even sell mushroom growing kits. Wholesale to restaurants is a cornerstone of their steady income. It's part of why they grow indoors rather than outside on logs. In order to run our operation, uh, we knew that we needed to be able to provide mushrooms year-round and irregardless of the weather. And a lot of our chefs will put us on their seasonal menu. And sort of our unspoken contract to them is that if we don't deliver those mushrooms, they're going to have to 86 the dish. Uh, and we would probably lose that account and the, the chef would lose revenue. And Laura wants to keep this part of her business thriving for local chefs. We're definitely seeing a lot of innovation with mushrooms and how they're such a unique protein that can feed the world and be produced on such a limited footprint. One of Haw River's wholesale clients is the Eddy Pub. The Eddy is also located in Saxapaha, North Carolina. It's a former mill town outside Chapel Hill that's cultivated a reputation as a quirky arts and food getaway. I'm sitting at the bar at the Eddy trying their pickled mushroom conserva and a very decadent mushroom toast. Sauteed in butter with shallots and a little bit of white wine and then cream and goat cheese. Isaiah Allen is the Eddie's executive chef and co-owner. He's also a farmer and invested in seasonal produce. January, it's great for the winter. As delicious as it is, once we hit, start hitting April, you know, the end of March, early April, and the days start getting into the 70s and 80s, it's time to pull it because it's a heavy app. Moving to a table, he tells me about the Eddie's sustainability activities. Minimizing waste is a huge, huge part of what we do. And so even when I create dishes and think about how to source, I also think about, about that. Chef Allen made today's dishes with so-called B-grade mushrooms from Haw River, a less pretty mix of cinnamon caps, lion's mane, and oyster mushrooms. There's certain chefs that want this pristine product that comes to them at, you know, top dollar and everything has to be perfectly sized and perfectly shaped and, you know, kind of having the ag side of that as well, you know, I know how difficult that can be. And, um, yeah, I think as I've developed as a chef, I've kind of veered away from that a little bit and if I'm gonna chop up mushrooms and saute them in a pan I don't need I don't need them to look all the same so it benefits me and our customers because I can put it on the menu at a lower price point to buy their b-grade honestly their b-grade are fantastic quality um, you know if they weren't then it would probably be a different story the Eddie receives mushrooms from Haw River in the substrate grow bags that I saw over at Laura's farm and we don't waste that either 
So we'll take a paring knife and we'll just trim off the sawdust and then we'll grind the mushroom stems and make mushroom stock out of that. Once we've extracted everything that we could possibly get out of it, then it goes into the buckets to compost. The sawdust dumps of the mushrooms end up at Chef Allen's Rocky Run Farm. We compost every single food scrap, whether it's meat, bone, um, dairy, vegetable, and it all goes to our farm. So we add, we take their spent mushroom mycelium bags by the truckload and we'll bring them to the farm and I add the spent mushroom mycelium to the entire pile. I got this light bulb moment one day realizing that I had all these wood chips lined up and uh, understanding what mushrooms do to wood and how they feed on the sugars in wood. And it's you can look at my compost pile from the front side where the food is added, the nitrogen source, and it just steams like crazy in the winter. Laura from Haw River Mushrooms has also figured out some novel uses for this used substrate. Being in the farming community, we, we realize what a privilege it is to have a product that its byproduct just builds soil. We've also used some of our spent substrate for uh, what we call mycoremediation projects. So we have a river that runs through our property um, that had a lot of erosion downstream. And we, we took those bags and put them in coffee bags. Um, and it kind of helped slow the erosion, and also as the water went through there, it would get some natural filtration. So mushrooms are versatile as a food, but Laura says that uses like this make them even more powerful, and yes, keep them trending. I think that's where it's like, yeah, we could definitely do this, you know, our whole lives, and we're not going to run out of things to learn. It's, It's exciting. I feel like it's one of the last remaining frontiers, you know, that there's there's just still so much to explore and learn. For WFIU's Earth Eats, I'm Josephine McRobbie. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. We'll see you next time. Stay connected. Subscribe to the Earth Eats Digest. It's a bi-weekly email with food stories, updates on the show, and recipes from the Earth Eats archive. Go to eartheats.org to sign up. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young with help from Aobon Binder. Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Daniela Richardson, Peyton Whaley, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Renee Wild, The Grounded Hope Podcast, Agraria Center for Regenerative Practice, Allison Herrera, 10,000 Fresh Voices, KFAI, and Josephine McRobbie. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Mm-hmm.